Good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are, whatever time it is, welcome to Teacher Tired. I hope that you had a fantastic winter break, and I really hope that you had two weeks off like me because it was amazing. I hardly got out of my PJs until about 1 p.m. in the afternoon. (laughs) It's been amazing. I've just been lounging, doing nothing, um, barely working, and then creating podcast content for you guys. So today, I dove into some questions that people had asked me over on my Instagram. I kind of posted something and was like, hey, ask anything you want. It can be about teaching. It can be about my personal life, um, anything, and then I will dive into it on my podcast. So I went ahead and took five of my favorite questions revolving around teaching and going to answer them here. So They are super informational. They're super short. They're super personal in how I do some things. And I just wanted to preface with that every single teaching experience is different. Every single person would probably answer these questions differently than how I am. And that's okay. I think that if you know what you're doing or you know how to be a strong teacher, do what you feel comfortable with. Now, if there's something that you want to work on or change, maybe here are some ideas on how to change those things. But we are all different. We are going to teach differently, and you may have a different response to these questions than I do. These are just my personal responses to the questions that I got. So the first question I got was, how do you deal with difficult parents? (laughs) The first thing I want to say is don't take it personally. Remember that these are their babies, right? Like this is their child. This is their whole heart that they're discussing with you, right? So there's going to be times where they have this like mama bear or a daddy bear like sense to the conversation or when they come to approach you about their child. It's their baby, right? Like we would be the same way with our kids or whomever. So just remind yourself that every time you go to communicate with a parent, remind yourself like don't take it personally. It's because they're in a mama bear, daddy bear state. They always will be. It's just how it's going to be. Don't take it personally. The other thing is that parents have zero idea what's going on in the classroom. Now, there's always the exception of the parents who have taught before our teachers. You know, there's always exceptions to that rule. But my personal rule is that I remind myself that the parents have no idea what goes on in the classroom. Zero. Zero idea. Okay, they drop their kids off in the morning and then they don't see you or their kid again until they pick them up. They don't know what happens from 7.45 to 3 o'clock when they pick them up or whatever the time is. They don't know. There's no camera in there watching. And all they know is what their student tells them. Or, in my case, what a five-year-old tells them. (laughs) So parents have no idea what's going on in the classroom. And that's super important to remember when they're communicating with you because it's super easy for us to assume that, you know, for example, here's a great, here's a great example. I had a parent come up to me and, and got really, really upset because a lost sweatshirt in the classroom. And I completely understand because clothing is expensive and as the kids are little, again, I teach kindergarten, so they're constantly growing, they're constantly getting bigger, they're going to have to buy more clothing. I completely understand. Again, I did not take it personally. Lost sweatshirt, you're upset. Okay. 
But the message was extremely aggressive. And to be honest, I just got so good at the skill. I kind of was like, eh, whatever. But I can see where a lot of teachers have issues with this because they're like, are you kidding? It's a sweatshirt. I'm trying to keep your ch- your child alive all day and educate them and make sure that they're not being, you know, they're being respected and they're all these things. And then you want me to worry about a sweatshirt? Really? <laughs> I get it. I totally understand. But parents have zero idea what goes on in the classroom. And that day that that student lost a sweatshirt, there was a massive meltdown in my room in which we had to evacuate the classroom and go across the hall. And my assumption is that this student grabbed their sweatshirt, brought it with them, and left it outside, and we have never seen it again. Okay? The parent doesn't know that. The parent doesn't know that there was a huge meltdown and we had to evacuate the room and he probably brought it with him and totally lost it. All the parent knows is that there was a sweatshirt when she dropped him off and then there wasn't a sweatshirt when he, she picked him up. That's all the parents know. They have zero idea what goes on in the classroom. Now, it's not my profession to sit there and explain to the mom about a meltdown from another student. We're required to keep that private. So I wasn't going to explain that to her. But it was important for me to be respectful in my communication with her, knowing that she has no idea what went on. She has no idea why that sweatshirt may have been lost. So I have to keep it respectful and just let them let her know, you know, I'm sorry we lost the sweatshirt. I'm not sure where it went. I will keep checking the lost and found. I'll send him to the lost and found during the day. Maybe it'll pop up. Um, but next time, just put his name on the tag, and then maybe we won't have this problem again. And then I also informed her that in my classroom, if your sweatshirt's not on your body, it's in your backpack. Those are my rules um, because if that was not the rule, then we would have sweatshirts all over the place. <laughs> So that is a huge tip is to remind yourself when you're communicating with them that parents have zero idea what's going on in the classroom. Don't take it personally when they come at you with a mama bear attitude or a daddy bear attitude when they have no idea what goes on from when they drop them off to picking them up. And I have to tell myself this. If a parent comes at me, and oftentimes they do, as you know, and either start drilling me questions or blaming me for a lost sweatshirt or blaming me for, you know, all these things. It's like, I have to take a deep breath and remind myself, like, they have no idea. So what are they going to do? Of course, they're going to point fingers at someone. What else are they going to do, right? That's kind of their human instinct. I don't know why, and I wish they wouldn't do it, but it's sometimes it just happens. And it's really important for us to take a deep breath Don't take it personally. They have no idea what's going on. And remember that these are their babies. They're going to be mama bears and daddy bears. We will be too. Or I know I will be when I have kids, right? I mean, we're like that with our students, with other teachers, right? Like it's it's just natural. So it's okay. Don't take it personally. It's going to happen. And remember that they don't have an idea of what goes on during the day. Okay. Another tip I have is over communicate from the beginning. Day one, when you meet your parents, over communicate. I cannot stress this enough because the more I communicate with my parents, the less problems I have when when it comes to parent communication. I'm talking about not with the students, but the more I communicate with them, the more they build trust in me, the less I get blamed for. 
It's just natural. It's how it is. It's how we are in our lives and our relationships. And that goes for the same between the parent and the teacher relationship. So the biggest example I have, and I would recommend doing this, is that at the beginning of the year, I inform my parents of my like solid, no exception rules. My like top three rules that I will not give any exceptions for, regardless of who who your student is, regardless of their conditions, there are three rules I will not give an exception for. And I have complete support from my administration and school rules behind this. One is no physical contact will be acceptable. Under no condition will physical contact be acceptable within my control within my classroom. Number two, there is no toys at school, and if I see them, they'll end up in my desk, and you'll get them back over winter break or summer break. Now, (laughs) that's a little dramatic, I know, but the reason I say that is because I teach kindergarten, and a lot of times the parents think, oh, if you bring your little teddy to school, maybe you'll feel better, right? And so then they bring their teddy to school, and then it becomes a distraction, and then, you know, you have such a hard time getting the teddy bear away from them so that they can focus and then it becomes this whole thing and then October rolls around and they still have their teddy and all the other kids want to talk to teddy and blah, 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 blah. And it's this whole thing, right? It's it's super distracting and not good for the student in their learning. It's definitely not good for the other students in their learning and it's really hard for the teacher and the student to kind of set solid foundations when something from home came in. Um, So I just kind of am super dramatic with it, and I let parents know, hey, if I see a toy out, it's mine. Like, that is a no exception rule. You'll get it back. I'll send it back with you. But if you bought something and you think it's important, don't let your student take it to school because you're not going to see it until winter or summer break. (laughs) And I just tell them, I'm like, I know that's dramatic, and if you want the toy back, I'll definitely give it to you. But I want you to understand the importance behind it, and I am – super, super stern with this because of that importance. So I am a little bit lenient when it comes to keeping it in my desk, so to speak, but I just let them know how dramatic it is because of how important it is. Number three, and no exception rule in my room, is name calling. By no means will I let a student name call another student or me. Like, I, my name is Mr. Wartha. You're going to call me that. Like, that is my name. Um, I don't – I think name-calling is super disrespectful, um, and that's going to lead into my next question from my Q&A. But it's super disrespectful, and these – for me, these kids are five. Like, maybe that's not disrespectful to them. Maybe they don't know. So it is a learning process, and I'm not super harsh with it at the beginning when they're learning. But once my students know my rules, there's no exception behind it. You shouldn't be calling someone a name. It's not respectful, and I won't have it. So the reason that I over-communicate this with parents from the beginning, day one, and remind them every once in a while, is because I will have parents communicate with me once their student is a victim of one of these rules. So for example, um, I once had a parent communicate with me that their student was being pushed on the carpet. And I had never seen this before. I was unaware. And to be honest, I was like super shocked because of the students that were involved, Um So I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, And my response was, thank you for letting me know. As you know, this is one of my no exception rules as the student's safety is my number one concern. And I'll be handling this with that specific student. Done. Conversation over. (laughs) Right? I gave the parent my expectation. 
She communicated with me that something was happening, and I said, thank you for letting me know. Your student safety is my number one concern. Side note, always say that because parents love it. And I will be handling this from a specific from that specific student. I'm letting the parent know, one, thank you for letting me know. Two, your student safety is my concern. Three, I will be handling it. Okay? Now, that usually ends the conversation. I'm not going to lie. I've hit all three bullet points of making sure that their student is safe and that it's not going to happen again. But you're always going to have some, you know, <clears throat> rare cases where the parent's going to come back at you like, well, how are you going to handle it? What are you going to do? Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Some parents want to know what you're going to do. And I understand that completely. Sometimes, depending on the situation, I will respond something like, um, I can't, uh, I'm trying to think of this off the top of my head. Something like, I can't, um, gosh, what's the word? Kind of like I can't expose that information based on another student, um, but I just want to let you know I'm handling it. Thank you for letting me know. And if it is a huge concern of theirs, they'll go to administration. They're not going to come back at you and ask these questions. So don't worry about it too much. Just make sure that their student is safe. Let them know that you're keeping their student safe and that it's your number one concern and you'll be handling it, right? Another example when it comes to over-communicating, is sending home daily updates. Now, this can be tricky. For one, you have to figure out how you're going to manage it. And how I manage it is at the end of every day, a student gets a stamp inside of their folder if they had a good day. Now, if they didn't have a good day, they do not receive a stamp, and there's a little spot where I write a note to the parent about what had happened or why they did not get the stamp. And it can be small. It can be simple things like, you know, constantly off task today, didn't manage to get any work done, okay? Now, there's always going to be rare cases far and few between, but cases where parents may be concerned with why they didn't get a stamp. And they may say something like, hey, I meant I saw that you got a note or you wrote a note about, I don't know, Bob, <laughs> I'll just make up the name, Bob not doing their work and you didn't give them a stamp. I was just wondering if, you know, I was wondering if this is a big concern. I always respond with something along the lines of letting them know that the stamp is earned with good behavior and that it's just an opportunity for their student to learn and fix their behavior. It's not a big concern of mine. The stamp process is a simple behavior reinforcement within my classroom that allows them to fix their actions. And the students know that. I explain that to the students within the process. But from a parent perspective, sometimes the parents get confused and they think, well, my student had stamps all week last week. What happened today, right? And it's okay. You're, some of their students are going to have bad days. And I let the parents know. I say, hey, Bob is a really good student. He's always on task, always getting his work done. And today was just a rough day. That's okay. We, we're human. We have rough days. And I want him to know that's okay too. But here's his opportunity to fix his action, okay? Now, if you have a parent concerned about never getting stamps, that may be a bigger concern that you want to communicate with them about. But I always let parents know that if it's a big concern of mine, I'm going to reach out to them via email, via phone call, or after school, whatever it be. If it's a big concern, I will be reaching out to them. I'm not just going to send home a blank stamp and not explain why. So that kind of leads into my next question. Someone had asked me, how do you build respect in the classroom? Now, 
I am going to be honest, I am extremely passionate about this. I truly believe that building respect in your classroom starts with you as the teacher. I truly believe that you are a role model. You are going to build respect by giving respect, hands hands down, right? And, and it's not always going to be in return. They're still kids, guys, right? Like you're not always going to get 100%, 100% respect back. But as so long as you're giving it, then they have something to – they have a role model. They have something to guide them in the right direction. So this question can be tricky because depending on your student's home life or maybe their upbringing or their background, respect can be defined in different ways. So you have to define it for your classroom. Let me say that again. You have to define it for your classroom. You have to define what respect is going to be like, look like, sound like, everything within your classroom and start from day one. You should be showing and telling those students what respect looks like from day one. Day one of school, the moment that they meet you. If they meet you before then, do it before then. (laughs) It's super important to, to be their role model, but then also giving the expectation on day one. So what that kind of looks like in my room um, is that I tell my students their rules of respect in my classroom. And that's what I call them, the rules of respect. (laughs) And it's, again, I teach kindergarten, so it's super simple, but it's things like no hitting, name calling, sharing is caring, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit, You have helping hands. You're always helping others. And the best way to have a friend is to be one. Those are my, how many do I have? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six basic respect rules that hang up in my room. We talk about them every single day, every single day. And we give examples as to how we can do those things. Okay? Day one, you should be doing this. Day one. The moment you meet your students, you should be telling them these rules. If you want to add to them throughout the year, if you want to manipulate them throughout the year, fine. But so long as the day one you have your respect rules, that's how you're going to build respect. Okay? Then to lead into something else, what I do is I take those rules and I explain to my students how important they are to me as a human, not as a teacher, not as their teacher, but as a human, right? So I take these rules and I tell them how important they are to me each individual one, right? So let's use the example of hitting, okay? I always relate it to me. And I say things like, um, I'm going to use a fake name, Miss Karen. Let's say my next door teacher is Miss Karen and all the students know Miss Karen because she's the teacher that teaches next door. And I say something like, Miss Karen's a really good friend of mine and although we may get into arguments, if she were to hit me, Do you think it would be very nice of her to hit me? No. They would say no. Okay. If Karen hit me, do you think I'd want to stay friends with her? No. Do you think I'd want to play with her on the playground? No. Do you think I would want to come back and be her friend? No. So I relate it to myself in my life, and I allow students to know why it's important to me. And I tell them something like, you're right. I don't want to be friends with someone that's going to hit me. That's a bad choice. That's not someone I want to be friends with. That's not someone I want to share my toys with or my school supplies or sit next to on the carpet, right? Like I totally relate it to their current situation and remind them why it's important not to hit. 
Again, kindergarten, super low level. That can be relatable. You know, if you have older students, I would relate it to their lives. Why is it important not to name call when you're a preteen, right? You can all come up with some examples of that. And then once once they have the rules, once they know how important it is to you as the teacher, I continue to praise and praise and praise and praise kindness and respect in my classroom. It's extremely important in kindergarten and it's extremely important in all grades. But I think the older the kids get, the less we think that we need to praise it because they should already know it, right? Like if if you have a 15-year-old and he shares a pencil – I feel as though sometimes we may, as high school teachers, I don't know, I've never been there, but I feel like when I was in high school, I never really got praised for that stuff because it was just expected. It was just like your expectation is to share and to be kind and you just got to do it, right? But we're still kids. We're still messing up. We're not adults. We can't fix our own actions. So I would encourage you to continue to praise kindness. Continue, continue, continue. Praise, praise, praise. It helps so, so much. As you know in all your professional developments, I'm sure they've talked about it. But my praise usually sounds like, um, oh, man, I love how you chose to share your yellow crayon. That's a huge act of kindness. Thank you so much. What a great way to make a friend. I bet you that person that you shared with is really excited to have a yellow crayon because before you shared, they didn't have it. Now, that may sound completely (laughs) dramatic, and it is, but I take every single opportunity to shout out kindness, compliment them, and then slightly explain why it's important, right? Did you hear me? I said, thank you so much for sharing. That You know, that's a huge act of kindness, and what a great way to make a friend. But then I also said, I bet that person you shared with is really excited to have a yellow crayon now. I gave them a why. Because even if they're five years old and even if they have no idea what the heck I'm saying, they can relate to the fact that why. Why did they just share? And some of my students, it's just natural. It's just how they were raised to share, right? And some of my students, it's not natural. And it's really awkward to share because maybe they're an only child and they never had to do that before. So praising them and explaining why it's so important is huge and it keeps the respect in your room going in a full circle because someone else around around them is going to hear me giving that praise. Someone else around them is going to want to share too, okay? It's huge. Continue, continue, continue to praise, praise, praise. It's huge. And if it sounds dramatic and it sounds like a Broadway play, fine. So be it. Use that script if you want, right? For me, it comes naturally because I know it's really important for my kids to be praised. But if it doesn't come naturally for you, I would recommend like using a script or finding some way to praise it and giving a small incremental why, especially for the older kids, right? Because I think the older we get, the more we forget why we're kind because we just think it's an expectation, okay? Another way I keep kindness in my room is allowing them to realize that they're human, okay? So in kindergarten, we often hear things like, um, so-and-so doesn't want to be my friend anymore, okay? (laughs) Again, they're five, so you hear this often. And I kind of respond with, oh, no, that's so sad. How do you feel, right? Because I want them to first tell me if they're angry. They're, you know, kind of dive into, like, what happened. And they'll usually respond with sad or mad. And I say, well, you know what? Maybe that student just needs some space. And that's okay. Miss Trewartha needs space sometimes from her friends. 
that's okay. It's okay to need space, right? So why don't you give that student some space, go back to what you were doing, and then maybe later in the day they'll want to play with you, okay? Now, the first time I have this interaction with a student, it doesn't always go well because they want me to fix it, right? And that's not necessarily fixing it. But the more and more I have this interaction with students, they start getting used to me saying things like, maybe they just need space. And they start to learn, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe it's not just me. It's just that they need space from me, okay? Now, this is also a whole group conversation that I have with all of the kids, and I tell them and teach them, instead of saying, I don't want to be your friend, say something like, I need some space right now. Maybe we can play later, okay? So, you know, when, let's say, Bob and Susie, okay? Susie tells Bob, I don't want to be your friend right now. Bob comes up to me. She doesn't want to be my friend right now. I have that same conversation. But then I go back to Susie and I say, hey, Susie, it's okay if you need space from Bob right now. That's totally okay. Completely normal. Miss True Wortha needs space from her friends too. But instead of saying you don't want to be their friend, can you say you just need some space right now and you can maybe play later? Right? I go back to that person and I give them different language. Give them something else to say instead of I don't want to be your friend. Okay, now I know that sounds super kindergarten, but I also know that the older kids have this issue tremendously. They feel excluded. They feel like they don't want to be, you know, part of that group, whatever it is. Allowing, teaching the kids and allowing them to feel okay with space is normal. Guys, they're human, but they're also kids. And if they're not taught that language, they're, continue, they're going to continue to say, I don't want to be your friend or make others feel left out. It's okay to want space and it's okay to ask for space. It's also okay to give space, but it has to be a taught lesson within your classroom. It's not just going to be there or as an expectation. It's also a really good life lesson, <laughs> right? Like it's really good for us to think about too as adults, especially in teaching, but Just to build respect in your classroom, that's really important to consider, is how to let them feel okay with space and how to ask for it as well. A third question that I got was, when do you plan? How do you plan? And what does it kind of look like? So my planning is going to be completely different. Like I said, everyone's situation is really different. I'm a kindergarten teacher, so a lot of my planning is printing, and a lot of it is like games and small group and stuff like that. So keep that in mind when I'm having this conversation. But so the idea is that you plan during your plan period, but we all know that does not always happen, (laughs) especially in my case. My plan period is usually involving like parent communication or going to check things in the office, picking up packages, checking my mail, printing things off the printer, you know, emailing parents back. My solid 35 minutes is just filled with other things. I don't have really time to plan. So what I do is that I pick one day a week. It's the same day every week where I stay for about an hour after school to plan out the next week. Now, I don't always need an hour. Sometimes it's a half hour, especially once I start to get in the groove of the year. But I will say, give yourself an hour just in case. Um, And side note, little side tip, 
set your alarm. Like don't stay longer than an hour because that's just ridiculous. So something I learned from another teacher on Instagram was she set her alarm at a specific time and then she just stopped what she was doing and left. And that's something that I've been trying to get better at because if you are a new teacher or you haven't taught before, I will warn you, you could stay all night and still work. Like It is really easy just to keep going because as a teacher, it never ends and it never will until summer. And then when summer hits, you're worried about the next year. So um, what I do and what I would recommend is setting an hour, uh, hour timer and totally leave after that hour. There's no reason you need to stay longer. Um, even if you don't feel fully planned for the next week, remember you have the weekend or have other times. Don't be there longer than an hour. Anyway, back to what I was saying. So I pick one day a week where I stay about an hour after school and I plan out the next week. Um, again, for me, that looks like a lot of printing, organizing, you know, what are we doing on Monday? What are we doing on Tuesday? It's very subject matter too. So like I have a planner and in my planner, I have it by subject, right? So uh, I'm a kindergarten teacher, so my subjects might sound a little bit different to you, but um, I have subjects such as phonics and then what are we going to do in our stations? What are we going to do during reading, writing, math, science, et cetera? And I have to manipulate my times too. So sometimes I'm planning like what time of the day we're doing things. If we have an event that day, how am I going to fit that in? Um, Kindergarten's a lot of, lot of planning. I have a lot of planning in my day. Um, I teach all subjects. I'm with the kids all day. There's a lot going on when it comes to planning. But the way that I organize it in my planner is by subject and what we're doing by subject. So um What I do to do that is first I look at my personal pacing guide for the grade that I'm in. So in kindergarten, we have a pacing guide that tells us where this, what the students should be learning at what time. Okay. Now we are in the month of January. And so I'm going to use January as an example. In January, my, let's see, let me open my planner up. So in January, my students will be getting will be beginning place value. Um, my small reading groups begin, and we start showing different forms of ten, um, and then we start doing eleven through twenty. So there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of new stuff. We also start subtraction, um, a lot of new sight words. Again, kindergarten, there's a lot going on. <laughs> so what I do is I take the month. And I take my my pacing guide or the guide that my school gives me, which tells me where my kids should be. I lay it out by week, right? So I, I try to manipulate it for my class. It'd be ridiculous to teach place value and subtraction within the same week to five-year-olds, okay? So what I do is I take the first week of the month and I ask myself, is there anything we need to work on from last month, right? It just so happens that in January, the answer is probably no because we have we had a long winter break. And I don't think there's anything we truly need to review because a lot of my students mastered a lot in that time period. But I may want to step back to a few things, but I'll get to that in a minute. So the first week I always look at, is there something we can review in the past? And what are we starting new? So then I write it out week by week. So the first week in my monthly calendar is going to be like starting place value and my small reading groups begin. And then the next week may be something like introduce subtraction. And the next week may be like diving into subtraction with manipulatives and, you know, pictorial and all the stuff 
that goes along with subtraction. And then the following week may be mastering subtraction, getting them to see it on paper, how to write it, etc. And so my pacing guide kind of guides me. It's literally called a pacing guide for a reason. It guides your pace. It's guiding where we should be, but it's not necessarily telling us that we have to be there. Okay, and that was something huge that my school taught me that I'm at now. It's not a guide to tell you that you have to be there with your kids. That's what the state standards are for. What it is, is a guide to pace you, right? Like where should you be this month? And how can you manipulate your month to look like that? So that's kind of what I do. I take the guide, I lay it out by week. Um, What can we work on that week? And then when I lay out my day, I go day by day, what can we work on that specific topic per day, okay? So for example, in my January, my first month, um, I'm sorry, my first week in January, we're working on place value. Now, the first two days, the Monday and Tuesday of the week is just going to be introducing it, okay? So I'm just introducing place value. I'm talking about it. I'm showing it. What does it mean? All of the things. And then the rest of the week is going to be diving into it. Okay, and then the week after that may be some review, and then at the end of the week might be a little introduction to subtraction. So like I said, use your pacing guide, lay it out by month, and then you can dive into week by week and then day by day. Um, I wouldn't recommend day by day until the week before because you may get thrown a loop. So for example, let's say I introduce place value and Then we had a fire drill on Wednesday, a lockdown on Thursday, and I hardly got to place value all week, right? You may want to spend the next week working on it because stuff happens and you're going to have to be adaptable and changing things around. So definitely wait to do week by week until the week before. Again, that's when I stay for the hour and plan the next week. It's really important to know what you did last week. Yeah, so on and so forth. Like you you guys know. Um, What else do I do? Oh, so there's two things that I do that I love that I do. Um, I don't know how, why I started doing this. I can't remember if it was like in a professional development that someone had taught me. Um, or maybe it was one of my student, when I was student teaching, one of my teachers I was with. I can't remember. But what I do is I take two sticky notes and I place it in my monthly calendar. One sticky note is for me and one sticky note is for my students. On the sticky note for me, I write down things that I want to work on in my teaching for that month. Um, So for example, in January, in my teaching, it says reminding students of basic rules. Because in January, when we come back from Christmas break or winter break, the students tend to forget simple rules, right? Like sharing rules and being kind and how we speak to others. It's kind of like the start of the year all over again. So I wrote down reminding students of basic rules and then number two, positive reinforcement because I feel as though it, again, it's the beginning of the year and the students need extreme positive reinforcement to remind them of the good things they should be doing because it's January and they just had two weeks off. So they kind of forget a lot. (laughs) Um, And then the other sticky note is I write down things that I want my students to be working on. So this is typically a reflection of last month. So my January sticky note is going to be a reflection of December, a reflection of something I don't quite feel they've mastered and we should keep working on. Now, it's not something that 
they necessarily have to have that month. It's just something I feel like I've been teaching week after week after week and they're just not getting it, right? Like we all know those things where you're just like, I've been teaching you rhyming words for like 10 weeks. How has no one understood it? Okay. So I always take that sticky note and use it for the things that I feel like they should be grasping by now. Um, And it doesn't mean that they have to grasp it that month, but just something that I should continue to work on. So for example, my, um, my January student goals are like tapping three sound words to, or my gosh, I can't even say it, tapping three sounds to make a word. So like cat, at, and they have to tap it with their fingers to make the word cat. I feel like half of my kiddos are doing really well with that and the other half are not. And I'm really confused why because we've been doing it since day one, right? So that's kind of where those sticky notes go. I love it because it it's really easy for me to flip to the month of January, look at my goals. Okay, what am I working on as a teacher and what do I want them to be working on as students? Um... So yeah, that's it. That's everything that I do when it comes to planning. My school does not require me to have lesson plans. That is so sacred. (laughs) We do have to map out like what we're doing day by day, week by week, like in our planner. So if I ever went to like a meeting, I could open it and say, well, on this day we worked on this, which is totally fine. I have all of that written down, but a lot of schools will require like actual lesson plans for every lesson. And Guys, I teach kindergarten, okay? So every day I would have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I would have seven lesson plans to turn in every single week. No, every day. Seven lesson plans a day for five days a week. I'd have 30 lesson plans to turn in, okay? Now, some schools require this. So if you're someone going into school, I'm sorry, going into teaching and you're interviewing, like, you are more than welcome to ask, do you require me to turn in lesson plans? Because that's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work taken from your teaching. I'm just going to be open and honest about it. It is. It's a lot of work that you can be working on other things to better your teaching or to better a specific material that you're spending writing down what you're going to (laughs) do. Now, I'm not against lesson plans. I do think we need some sort of like plan ahead. But some of the lesson plans that you're required to make out there If you're one of those people, I feel for you. All right. Number four, someone asked me, how do I deal with a behavior problem in my classroom? Oh my gosh. I like love and hate this question. It's a loaded question. All schools have different procedures and policies. Every teacher has their own way of doing it. Um, But my personal preference may be completely different than what you want to do or what you are doing. And that's fine. Every teacher is different. But for starters, when it comes to behavior problems, I always try to identify the issue. Now, this is really hard. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It's not always obvious, especially when they're five years old. Um, Well, and even the older kids, like how do I, I don't know. Anyway, I try to identify the issue. Is it attention-seeking? Is it just them avoiding productivity? Is it just them not feeling like they fit in with their peers? Or is it something extremely extensive that I may need outsource resources for help, right? When it's more extensive, I would highly recommend seeking professional help, going to your administration or even a mentor and just asking, like, hey, I have this student with this specific issue. 
or I don't even know what the issue is because I can't identify it, can you help me? 10 times out of 10, they're going to help you. I promise. And it's okay to admit that you're having an issue within your room. Every single person, every single teacher, every single administrator has been there with a problem in the room. I, I guarantee it. If they haven't, they probably haven't been teaching. Okay? So when you go to these people for help, and again, I recommend it because there are times where you cannot do it alone. That is why I started this podcast, friends. You cannot do this career alone. Go seek help when you need it. Even if it's from your neighbor next door, right? And it could be silly things like, hey, Jimmy threw his shoe across the room and hit one of my kiddos. Now I got to tell that kiddo's mom that they got hit by a shoe. And then I got to talk to this mom. Can you help me communicate that to parents? Right? Or like, hey, how can I keep him from taking his shoes off? What would you do? Those questions are okay to ask. And if you're going into your first year of teaching or if you're in your first couple of years and you have not asked for help, please stop what you're doing and go ask for help. It is super important in this career that you feel comfortable asking for help. So practice now. Anyway, so... Once you go ask for help, be open to that feedback. A lot of times us teachers will go ask for help, but really what it's what we're doing is just hiddenly complaining about that student consistently. Like we're just going up to other people and complaining about the student because that's what feels really good. I would challenge you to not complain about the student, but provide what the issue is. Tell them all of the evidence that you have, all the things that are going on in the room without kind of a complaining twist to it or a context. And try to fix it. Be open to the feedback that you're going to get. Because many times we just want to sit there and we want to complain about what's going on. But instead of complaining, just sit back, tell them what's going on, be open to their feedback, and try to fix it. Not everyone's feedback is going to be for you, but it's worth trying, especially if you feel helpless. Okay? Now, if it's a more easygoing behavior problem, something that... I do is if I've identified the issue, I always go towards like a behavior chart or a reward system that they can follow on a daily basis. Now, I am a fiend for behavior charts. I love them. Um, I think, I don't know why. I just, it is hard to manage. I'm not going to lie. It is hard to manage from a perspective of like if a student gets a sticker or a stamp every time they do something, it's really hard to manage. So I always use another student as like, (laughs) my managing tool. So like I'll place that student having behavior problems across from another student to recognize the good behavior and like report back to me. Now I teach five-year-olds. So this part is actually really easy for me because that, that student that sits across from them always wants to help me. Um, and it's kind of like my secondhand man. (laughs) If you don't want to do it that way, that's fine. I completely understand. Um, but it seems to work really well for me. So I love behavior charts. I stick it right in front of them. I tape it right on their table. Um, and I use them when only when they're entirely necessary. I try to stick to like simple positive reinforcements as much as I can before I get to that bigger issue where I need behavior charts. Um, but when they're necessary, they're necessary. So I would recommend keeping the goals small though. So if you have a behavior chart, let's say you have a student who can't sit still. They're constantly up, bothering other people, and not getting anything done, and they're roaming around the room, okay? 
Take that problem and start with one thing. One of those things. Okay, I just listed three things. I just listed that they're constantly up and they can't get out of their seat. Number two, they're bothering their peers. And number three, they're getting, they're not getting anything done. It's three things I just listed. Okay. I want you to pick one of those things and base the chart off of that one thing. Okay. So maybe the chart is the goal is to only get out of their seat five times within the day when they're not instructed to, right? Like not instructional times to like get up and move across the room, but exactly five times without instructed time. Then work on maybe going to three times a day and then maybe go on to zero times a day. Once you have them working on that specific skill of not getting up, the other skills are going to start to (laughs) kind of come with it, right? Like they're probably not going to be bothering other kids because you got them to sit down. Or they're probably going to be start working on their work because you got them to sit down. So pick one of those skills and have them work on one skill. Okay. Now, number five. How to handle an individual kid acting out so it doesn't affect your whole class. This is also something based on the teacher. Everyone's going to have a different preference when it comes to handling this kind of situation. And everyone's going to have kind of like a pain tolerance, right? Like I feel like my pain tolerance with an individual kid acting out is extremely strong versus some other teachers. And I I don't know if that's just because of my past experiences or kind of whatever, what my expectations are. I don't, I don't know, but everyone's going to have a different pain tolerance, if you will. So, um, I just want, you know, I want to remind you that we're all human and we all get upset, just like those kids having that moment. And the the question is specific to how to handle that individual kid when it doesn't affect your whole class. But I'm going to kind of twist that. I think the question should be something like how to handle the whole class when an individual kid is acting out. Because what happens is one individual kid acts out and then the whole class freaks out, right? But it's like you can't quite control the kid acting out. So what do you want to do? You want to control the kids that are not acting out because they kind of freak out and they look and they're like, ooh, ah, what is going on? Oh, my gosh. And it's more so you think think about that kid acting out. They're not going to be learning in that situation who is the other majority of the kids right? So what I do is I teach the other students how to respond, how to maybe ignore and why it's okay to have that bad moment. I tell them the same thing. I say, we're human. We're all going to get upset sometimes. But the important piece is that we remember to be respectful. Remember to be respectful to those people that are acting out, such as not looking at them, not laughing at them, and maybe not giving in to them, right, depending on the situation. I try to keep the majority of my students not acting out occupied in the best way that I can. But there are cases where it's extreme. There are cases where you have to call for help, they need to be removed, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm talking about the cases where you feel like you can control the situation. Don't necessarily think about controlling the one student acting out. Think about controlling the majority. This is a challenge. I'm not going to lie. It's really hard. 
But remember the importance of the priority of importance is one, their safety. Make sure that everyone is safe. Number two, make sure everyone is being respectful. Because the moment the majority starts acting out because one student acts out, it just gets worse. It just gets worse. So that is probably my biggest advice when it comes to when one student's acting out. How to not let it affect your other students is teaching them. Guys, they're kids. They don't know how to handle those situations. I don't care if they're 18 in high school. They still don't know how to handle those situations. When one person acts out, we all want to look and gawk at them. How can we ignore or respectfully give them their space when they're acting out? We're human. We all get upset. We're all going to make mistakes. Another question I got, number six, is any advice I have or tips for college students going into teaching? My biggest tip is shadow, 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 shadow as much as you can. Your college probably requires some sort of um, internship or a requirement to go and watch teachers and, you know, evaluate and yada, 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 all those things. But I would would recommend shadowing other teachers too on top of that. Go find peers or people that you've met with or email the principal that you've already shadowed at and ask if you can come back in. Nine times out of ten, they're going to say yes because they love extra help, especially for free. (laughs) Um, But just – or even ask teachers that you've already – watched, right? Like see if you can come in for more time because maybe the time that you had wasn't long enough. I would recommend every single day off that you have from work or any time that you have, shadow, shadow, shadow. If it means Saturday morning coffee with another teacher that you know because you can't fit any other time in, do it. Do all of the things to be with teachers to ask them how they do things, okay? Now obviously in the classroom, hands-on is way more better experience, but Anything you can get, I would recommend, okay? It's not like college. Actual teaching teaching is not like college. The lesson plans are different. The amount of work is different. I feel like college really just did not prepare us in the kind of way I wish it would have, okay? It just shows you a little glimpse of what it's like. And you really can't truly understand it until you're in it. So my biggest recommendation is to shadow as many people as you can. Go in before the students get there. Watch how the the teachers prep their day, right? Like watch every move that they make um, and leave after the students leave. Honestly, I would recommend staying like an hour late if that's what the teacher does, right? Or if they stay a half hour, stay a half hour late. Whatever the teacher does, you do so that you can get a full idea of what a day in the life of the teacher is because it's not just when the students are there. I'm telling you, there is way more to it, right? Get a feel for what their everyday life is like by not only watching but asking all of the questions. Now, this may be hard because it's hard to think of questions to ask, especially when you don't know, I guess, like what it truly is like. But things that I would recommend are things like when do you plan? How do you manipulate the curriculum to fit your class or your day? How do you schedule it all? Do you work closely with your team? If not, how do you do it alone? Is your team a big help? Who does what on the team? How do you write your lesson plans if you're required to? How do you do your classroom management? How do you do your whole group management? How do you handle your behavior charts? 
How do you handle parent communication on a daily basis, monthly basis, weekly basis? What do you do differently or what would you do differently? Okay. Another thing I would do when you're watching teachers is focus more on the day-to-day operations and procedures instead of the curriculum, okay? Do not worry about the curriculum the the teachers are teaching. Don't worry about it. That is something else that you will learn when you become a teacher because what is going to happen is they're going to hand you the curriculum and say, here's this, teach this, okay? And you're required to teach the curriculum that the school already has. So don't worry about the curriculum materials. There's always going to be the case where maybe your teacher or your school that you work for has a math curriculum, but maybe they don't necessarily use it all, like word for word. Maybe they just use bits and pieces and you're required to do the other half. Don't worry about it. That's not something you should worry about when you're in school. That's something you should worry about when you get the job, right? So my biggest thing I would say is focus on the procedures instead of the curriculum. How are the teachers lining the kids up? How are they giving expectations? How often do the teachers give those expectations? How do they reward the students? What incentivizes those specific students? Are there things that the teachers are using to engage the students during instructional times? Are they making it fun? How are they making it fun? Are they not making it fun? How would you make it more fun? Right? Engagement is huge. It keeps the students learning, keeps their attention. How do teachers grab their attention? How do students transition from one class to the other or from the carpet to their desks? How do they ask to go to the restroom? How do they ask a question? What are the policies within the room? Your curriculum comes next. Worry about the procedures in the room first. I'm not saying that you have to use everything you see, but take mental note of it and take actual notes of how they do it so that you have an idea of where to start right? You can think about how you want to run your circus by watching someone else's, okay? Another thing I would recommend is YouTube. Guys, we live in a space where there is endless amount of tips and tricks. Endless. YouTube, Google, blog posts, Instagram. There are so many tips and tricks out there. Go find them. Go find them. Go, I spent... I'm not kidding. Majority of my call, like the end of college, um, to get my teaching license, I spent probably an hour a day on YouTube learning other teachers' tricks. And I didn't use them all. It was just to help me start my circus. It helped me start my classroom. It told me where I wanted to be, things I did and did not want to do. Use YouTube, guys. Use blog posts. Use everything you can. And also, When you're in those searches, there's also a lot of free stuff that you can get, okay? Again, don't worry about the curriculum side of things yet, but there's a lot of free stuff that I found and materials that I ended up using just because I was doing all that research in college, okay? Now, finally, I want to say your first year will be stressful. It will be tiring. It will be exhausting but it will still be amazing. (laughs) And I say that because I love you and I want you to be full-fledged ready for that feeling. It's all so new. It's all so new. There's so much that you have to learn, okay? You have to learn the school policies, the curriculum, when your evaluations are due, when your goals that you have to set are due, 
how they communi- how the school communicates to parents, when your lesson plans are due, what are your requirements for lesson plans, how to work with your team, what resources are, are shared, when do you meet with your team, how do you get help from your school resources, such as special ed or therapists, what's allowed when decorating your room, how do you document parent contact, how are you going to set up your internal classroom procedures, and then you have to teach. Okay, (laughs) your first year is a lot. Okay, there's a lot going on, especially when you go into a school that is already established and everyone else around you already knows the procedures. Okay, you go into a school and it's like everyone around you already knows what to do when you're brand new and you have no idea what you're doing. And if you don't ask for help, you may not get it. Okay, you're going to feel lost, confused, overwhelmed. Just ask. Every single person that you may ask has been there. They've been new before. Maybe it was years ago. Maybe they just need reminded by you asking. But that's fine. Everyone's willing to help. And if someone's not willing to help, ask someone else. Don't be deterred by the first person you ask. Okay, your first year is hard. It is stressful. There's so much more that you're doing on top of teaching because there's so much that you have to learn. I'm currently in my first year. It is January and I am still learning. Okay, I'm going to be learning year to year, but when it comes to the school procedures and stuff, I am still learning. You're not just going to know it right away. Okay, there's a learning curve even for teaching. So, Those are my Q&A questions. That is just the basis of the questions that I got. I am sure I will do this again. So go check me out on Instagram, joe.treewartha, and look out for the next Q&A. I will probably base it on teaching again just to get some solid questions. Um, I really enjoyed this one, and I feel very passionate about these questions. So I hope that you enjoyed it too. Um, And I really hope that you got some insight on this. If you enjoyed the podcast or this specific one or the podcast so far, please give me a review. It's how we let other people know about the podcast. So podcasting is not like YouTube. It's not like Instagram or any other social platform where if I keep creating content, it just shows up in other people's space. That's not really how it works. It's all based on you guys. So you have to share what you think um, and how much you like it for other people to see it. It's a little bit different. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please, I ask you, just give it a quick review, um, how many stars. And then when it asks you to write a review, let me know what you think. Do you like the podcast because it's so real? Do you like, you know, because I'm so energetic or I'm young or whatever you like about it? Let me know. Um, That would mean a lot. And again, we're also teacher tired. I hope you're having a fantastic winter break or had one and happy January.